There are a lot of great love stories that are out there where someone is expressing their heart of love toward somebody else. I want to tell you about the one regarding Dean and Jennifer. Dean and Jennifer. Dean proposed to Jennifer for the 366th time, and she said yes. Now, it's not that Jennifer had turned him down the previous 365 times. It's just that she didn't know that he'd been proposing. See, this is the way that it went down. Dean knew that he wanted to ask Jennifer to be his wife, and so he wanted to do something that was a little bit unusual, out of the ordinary, so his story would be a little bit different. So what he did is on her birthday, he recorded a message, a video message of him proposing to her, and he wrote on this little whiteboard just a brief little message and dated it. The next day, he did the same thing, and the same thing the day after, and the day after, and he did that for 365 days. Now, so on her birthday the next year, she had, or he had this compilation of all of these little videos put together, and it was given to her, and she's watching all of these proposals, and while that's going on, he's sneaking up behind her, and when she's done watching all of those, <clears throat> she turns around, and there he is, and he gets down on his knees, and he proposes to her now for the 366th time, but just the first time to her in person. And as I told you, she said yes. Now I've shared that with a few of you, and you've had some different reactions. Some of you were like, in fact, most of you were like, oh, that's so sweet. How romantic. How creative. How beautiful for him to express his love every day for a year. That's some of you. Others of you, mostly the guys, are like, dude, you could have been married a year ago. What's with all, you must not have been very sure. You were afraid, and that's why you didn't ask her to marry you. That's the other response. Now, I'm not sure how you particularly respond to Dean's approach to asking Jennifer to marry him. She loved it, but you have to acknowledge that it at least was a bit unusual, an unusual expression of love. And that came to my mind because of the passage that we're talking about today. A very unusual expression of love. And the one that we're going to see today is actually on the part of a woman we encounter a few different times in the New Testament, somebody who you're probably familiar with. And in her particular case, she demonstrated love in this very unusual way. We're going to call it exemplary love. In fact, that's what we're going to call this message, is exemplary love. What does that exactly look like? I think exemplary is the perfect word to go along with it for this reason, because the dictionary defines it for us like this. The dictionary says exemplary is serving as a desirable model, representing the best of its kind. And what we're going to see today is a love that is the best of its kind, and there's no doubt that it is a model for you and a model for me. If we can learn it, we can take it on into our own lives, into our own expression of love. The place we find this is in Mark chapter 14. 
So please go ahead and open up your scripture journals, your Bible, your Bible app to Mark chapter 14. While you're doing that, welcome to everybody who is listening in, whether it be live here in the room or whether it would be on our Moon campus, maybe the classic venue or online. We had such a great time being together with everybody last weekend. I hope that you were able to be there. You've had opportunity in your service today to have the opportunity to see some of what went on in case you weren't there and you can make preparation to be there next year. Next year it's going to be July 14th. You can put it on your calendar right now so that you won't miss it for next year. All right, Mark 14 is where we are. We've been making our way all the way through the Gospel of Mark. To this point, we've seen a lot of different things. We've seen Jesus teaching, teaching the people, teaching the disciples. We've seen him carrying out powerful ministry and miracles, healing the sick and raising the dead and casting out demons. He's been doing amazing things, and he's attracted this huge following, this huge gathering, and many disciples including the twelve. Of course, not everybody was enthralled with Jesus, and there are some others who have been standing against him almost for this whole gospel. In fact, we can rewind all the way back to chapter 3 and verse 6, where we see it the first time where Mark records this. It says, The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. That was many, many months earlier. And that animosity just continued to grow and to continue to grow. And it brings us to Mark chapter 14, where that's the way that Mark opens this up for us. And so what we want to start talking about today is this context, the context that we're going to see this exemplary love in. So let's talk about this here for just a moment. No big secret. Mark just lays it out for us. Mark 14, beginning in verse 1, if you look at it, it says this. It was now two days before the Passover. So this is that final week. The Jesus leading up to the cross, Passover week, it's coming. Before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him, for they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. The Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread here were two annual celebrations, both of them commemorating the escape of the Israelites from the Egyptians many, many years ago by this point. Passover was celebrating that 10th plague that came upon the land where if you had the blood of the lamb above your doorpost, then God passed over those houses and ultimately Pharaoh let the people go. The Feast of Unleavened Bread also speaks to that same time when they had to leave the land in such haste that they didn't have time to use the leaven or the the yeast in the bread and allow it to rise, so they had to, to bake it unleavened, unleavened bread. And that's what the Feast of Unleavened Bread is about. Both of them celebrating what God had done from the escape of them out of Egypt. So all these pilgrims from all over Judea and beyond are coming into Jerusalem for this celebration. And Jerusalem, which normally would be a city of about about 50,000 at this point in history, would have swelled by at least five times. So there's about like a quarter million people who are here in the city at this time. The place was crowded. The RV parks were packed. The Airbnbs were full. Tom Bodette couldn't even have a light on for you because there weren't any rooms anyway. That's what's been going on. Now, for as much as these religious leaders want to get rid of Jesus, he's still a very popular figure. And that's why they're saying we can't just come out in broad daylight and grab him because the people are going to revolt if we do. So we're going to have to figure it out some other way. Maybe we're going to have to put it off for a little while. And that's when Judas steps up. And Judas makes his 
offer, which is going to allow for something different because G- or Judas knows the travels of Jesus. He knows where he's going to be. He's part of this inner circle of the 12. And so we read in verse 10, Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the 12, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. The chief priest thought, we're going to have to put this off till all these people are gone because there's just too much attention until Judas speaks up. And it gives them a different opportunity, maybe at night when the crowds aren't around. And in fact, we know that indeed is what is going to happen. So that's the context. It's volatile. It's politically charged. It's, it's religiously charged as well, to say the least. Yet, between these two bookends, verse 1 and 2, that is animosity, and, and verse 10 and 11, which is animosity, between those angry bookends, you have this beautiful exemplary love that we find is a bit of a haven in between. So we want to take a look at that. We want to see some characteristics of this love in the midst of the animosity See the beauty. A few different characteristics. The first of them is this, that exemplary love doesn't sweat the cost. Exemplary love doesn't sweat the cost. You may remember that during this week leading up to the cross, Jesus was staying a couple of miles outside of Jerusalem at a city called Bethany. Bethany. Mark tells us about it right here, picks up the story, verse 3. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, As he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of of anointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. Now Mark doesn't identify who this woman is, but John also contains this same story, his gospel, and it identifies for us that this is Mary. Mary, the sister of Martha and the sister of Lazarus. We've seen her other times in the scriptures, some that you will remember. And every time that we see them, it's some expression of devotion from her. One of them is where she's at the feet of Jesus while Martha's getting all upset that Mary's not there helping out with all of the duties. Another one is when Lazarus dies and Jesus comes and and that's her brother and Jesus raises him to life. And again and again, we just see this devotion in Mary growing and growing and growing. And given all that she's seen and all that she believes, she feels prompted in her heart just to give this exemplary love for Jesus. And she, so she takes this, this vial of this perfume, very costly, and she breaks it open and she uses it to anoint Jesus. She's not calculating the cost. She's not just trying to barely break the seal so she might take a couple of little drips on Jesus to protect and to preserve all of the perfume. She's like, no, I need to worship. I need to adore. I just want to celebrate Jesus, and this is worth it. Now, it was costly. This was not some dollar store perfume. I don't know, does the dollar store sell perfume? I'm kind of hoping you don't know, (laughs) to be honest with you. Yeah, oh yeah, I buy that all the time. No, No, I hope not. Well, we find out later that this perfume is valued at over 300 denarii, which in today's dollars would be about $30,000. That's what she has just poured out on Jesus. And she's done it happily. 
And it's something we need to understand that those two things aren't in conflict. An enormous gift of love and honor and praise to Jesus is not in conflict with joy. In fact, typically, the greater the expression of love, the greater the sacrifice, the greater the joy that comes right along with it. Mary does not sweat the cost. Remember the widow? Jesus told her, us about her a couple of weeks ago. We saw it a couple of chapters ago. She comes, she gives her two copper coins, all she has left to live on, it tells us. She does it happily, and Jesus praises her. You might remember the story from the Old Testament of King David. He wanted to buy a field so that he might build an altar, so that he might make this uh, sacrifice to God. And he approaches this guy, Aruna, who has this field, and he's like, let me buy that from you. And Aruna's like, no, I'll just give it to you. And David said, no, absolutely not, saying this. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. When genuine love for God is found in our hearts, we will give generously and happily to God. That's what we see on the part of the widow. It's what we see on the part of David. It's what we see on the part of Mary. And I pray it's what we'll find on the hearts of ourselves. Exemplary love doesn't sweat the cost. It's one piece we look here, we find here. Another characteristic that we find of exemplary love here is that exemplary love will attract critics. Now, you would hope that people would celebrate this sort of love that's on display here, but that's not always the case, and it's certainly not the case here. Verse 4, there were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. That's a pretty disappointing response in the face of this genuine outpouring of love. Now, we're not 100% sure exactly who all the different people are who were thinking that. Could it have been some of the chief priests? Yeah, quite likely. But it goes beyond this. It goes right on down to Jesus' own disciples In fact, again, from John's account, we learn that one of those was Judas. That he was one of those who was being a critic, one of the twelve. Now, despite the attempts to make it look otherwise, the indignation at this lavish outpouring was not from pure motives. That's what they're trying to suggest. But it's not. Remember, Judas is a thief. He was in charge of the treasury, and he would pilfer some of it out for himself, lying in his own pocket. You can just imagine him thinking, yeah, what we should have done is sold that and gotten all the cash, then I could have cared for it for you and lined my own pocket maybe a little bit more along the way. Of course, he can't admit that, so he has to make his objection on benevolent grounds. Oh, what we could have done for the poor. Of course, Jesus sees right through it. Judas's real problem was that he didn't possess a spiritual heart through which he could understand the exemplary love that is being demonstrated by Mary. He doesn't have it inside of himself, so when he sees it on display, he doesn't recognize what it is. He can't appreciate what it is because he doesn't hold that sort of value in his own heart. Neither do any of the rest of these critics. Jesus, or Judas and the others thought this was about perfume, It's not about perfume. It's about love. 
that expressing our love to Jesus and what that requires of us. And then an ironic twist, (laughs) not only was Mary not wrong to give this extravagant gift, she proves that she's the only one who has a real handle on what extravagant love really is. Instead of being called out, she should be lifted up and praised herself for what she has done. And I love the fact that when she felt moved to act, she acted. She did not get out a piece of paper, draw a line down the middle, pro on this side, con on this side, and make a list of whether or not she should do this. She knew she needed to act. And so she acted. I can think of times when I felt moved to act in a similar sort of way and somehow rationalize myself out of it. I don't want to be that person. And to be like Mary, I want to learn what exemplary love really looks like. Mary allowed exemplary love, extreme love, to grow in her heart, and it automatically responded with this perfect expression of love, as extreme as it might have appeared. And only those who have the same sort of love can understand that. That's why exemplary love will always draw critics, because they don't have that heart in themselves. And so it leads us to a place where we really need to ask, if we're responding to some extreme, extravagant expression of love or worship or generosity on the part of somebody toward God or in some context within the church, we get critical about what's been done. We need to examine what's really going on in our heart because quite likely the problem might be ours instead of the one that we're pointing the finger at. Exemplary love will always draw critics. I pray that we wouldn't be among them. And then there's one more characteristic of exemplary love, and that's that exemplary love deserves acclaim. When Judas and the others criticized Mary, Jesus comes to her defense This is cool, verse 6. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. Jesus reprimanded Mary's critics for missing the beauty of what they had witnessed because they were judging it by the wrong criterion. Just because they didn't see the beauty or couldn't see the beauty doesn't make it any less beautiful. It's an incredible expression on her part, and Jesus recognizes it. And he's calling other people to see it for what it is as well. It's not an indictment on her. It's an indictment on them. That's not all. Jesus has more he wants to say to these critics. Verse 7, For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. Now, that's been misunderstood at times. I thought, well, maybe I can come up with some sort of parallel to kind of illustrate what's going on here. And this is the best I can come up with, all right? So imagine that I call you up and I say, hey, why don't we go to lunch? And you're like, well, I don't think I want to. But I talk you into it. And so we set up a time, we set up a day, and we're all ready to go to lunch. Well, a couple of days before that day arrives, you get another call. But this one is from Buckingham Palace. And they say to you, 
that Prince William and Kate are going to be in PA and they've got a little extra time and they'd like to go to lunch with you. And you're like, hey, that's cool. When's that? And they tell you, and it's the same time that you and I are scheduled to go to lunch. So you say back to them, well, I'd love to do it, but I'm afraid you're going to have to tell Willie and Kate that I can't go because I've already got lunch with Pastor Jeff. All right. So you're already laughing. (laughs) All right. So now you go home. And your wife wants to know how your day went, so you're kind of reporting your day, and you say, oh, and by the way, the palace called, and uh, they said they wanted me to go to lunch with William and Kay with the royals, and I told them no because I already have lunch scheduled with Pastor, Pastor Jeff for that day. And your wife goes ballistic. She, like, hits the roof. She said, you did what? You turned down the future king and queen of England to have lunch with Pastor Jeff instead? She said, you're absolutely nuts. That's the only opportunity you're going to have to have lunch with them. You can go to lunch with Pastor Jeff anytime. And she's right. Now, what should you have done? Well, you should have invited me to go to lunch with you and the royals. That's what you should have done. But barring that... You should have called me up and said, hey, could we reschedule? We can do that anytime. This is a a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity that I need to take. And that would have been appropriate. Similarly here, Jesus is going to be going away very, very soon. This is a unique opportunity that the people have to encounter and engage with Jesus. He says, the poor you'll always have with you. I'm going away very soon. I'm going to die in a couple of days, and I'm going to ascend back to heaven shortly after that. This is essentially the opportunity that we have to be with one another. We should maximize this moment. That's what he's saying. Now, the fact that he says, yeah, the poor you'll always have, that's not disregarding the poor. It's not degrading the poor in any way. Jesus has been very clear through his ministry, exactly how he feels about the poor and the way that they ought to be treated. For instance, in Matthew chapter 19, he says, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. In Luke 14, Jesus says, But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. There's no doubt about Jesus' care for the poor. There's no doubt about the fact that Jesus wants us to care for the poor. But neither is there a doubt that we should not use some expression, even of love, toward others as a way to disregard the importance of spending our time with the principal relationship we need to develop, which is with God. That's what he's saying saying this is an opportunity. Don't set aside the opportunity to grow with God in order to pursue some other priority, however big that priority ought to be. Because you're getting it out of whack as you do so. Of Mary, Jesus goes on and he says in verse 8, she has done what she could. She's anointed my body beforehand for burial. Jesus said she did what she could, and that's an important thought. It's not what you can't do, it's what you can do that matters and what you follow through on. See, it's very tempting for us to say, well, there's this huge problem and I can't solve that huge problem, so I guess I'll turn in some other direction. That's not what Mary's doing. 
It's not what we're called to do. We can't do everything, but we can do something. You can't meet all of the needs of all of the hungry people in the world, but you can meet the needs of some. You can't provide comfort to all the lonely people, but you can provide comfort for some. Again, you, can do, you can't do everything, but you can do something. And what you can do, you must do. That's the example that we learn here from Mary. She engages. Don't rationalize and talk yourself out of it, which we're very good at doing. And what you do is likely going to have a huge impact, verse 9. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. That means that Mary's unselfish act will be remembered forever. And that's true, isn't it? Aren't we here 2,000 years later talking about it? As we should be, and it's going to continue. This story is going to continue to be told of her. The question is, what's the story that's going to be told about you? You might not be written down in the scriptures to be remembered forever. But what is it that you will be remembered for? Is it going to be this sort of heart of exemplary love that is on display from Mary? I guarantee you, if that's the sort of love that you live out, it's going to impact lives. Lives are going to be changed. People are going to remember. Maybe generations are going to remember because it's going to stand out that much. Why? Because it's an exemplary love that you don't see around you all the time. What's that impact you can have? See, sometimes we, sh- we shrink back from this. Why? Because we know that this kind of love attracts critics. Who do you think you are? You some holier than thou? Doing all these things for all these people? Aren't you something? And we shrink back because we're afraid of the response that might come from elsewhere. Mary's example to us says press forward. It says where you feel the urge to honor God, to serve God, do it. Stop justifying your way out of it and do it. If that's the way that you would live forward in this week to come or in this month to come, what would you do? What would you say? Where would you go? How would you act? What would you give? If we're going to learn the lesson of exemplary love. I pray that we might see it for what it is. Again, bringing us back around to what we've seen again and again and again when we talk about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, what Mark is calling us to again and again. It's never part-time. It's never a little bit of who you are. It's everything. All our heart. All our soul. All our mind. All our strength. Mary is a beautiful example of this sort of exemplary love. I pray that we'd recognize it for what it is 
and that we would take it and that we would find the opportunity to engage it and not rationalize ourselves out of it, but jump in and watch the blessing that flows for you and for whoever's in the path of that love. Friends, let us live out this exemplary love, not sweating the cost, not worried about the critics, just centered on honoring God. Will you do it? Heavenly Father, thank you for Mary. Thank you for what she shows us. Thank you for what she teaches us. Thank you for what we learn from her. Lord, I pray that that would be motivating. I pray that that would capture our attention. I pray that we would move ourselves forward with courage, with desire, with open hearts, not justifying our way out of something, not talking ourselves out of it because that's such a big deal, that's requiring so much, certainly I can do less. Maybe we be ones who aren't always caught when we're drawn to such an expression to make our pro and con list. Lord, help us to break it open and pour it out for your sake and for the glory of God. We ask that you'd make us those people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.